welcome into another edition of the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC. I'm Jeremy Huber. The Hoya Insider is your home for the stories of coaches, staff, and others from and tied to the Georgetown Athletics Department. We're joined on the show today by former Georgetown quarterback, Dr. David Fagenbaum. Dr. Fagenbaum with a truly inspirational story that led him to discovering a drug to treat his own condition, Castleman disease, which has nearly killed him on multiple occasions. David told the story of his saga in his best-selling book, Chasing My Cure, and he's taken what he's learned in his struggle against Castleman into the fight against COVID-19 as his team is currently searching for treatments. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to this. Thanks so much for having me. And David, you know, people know your story. You're tied to Georgetown as a quarterback. You played on the football team, obviously a student here, a very good one. But I always like on the Hoy Insider podcast to kind of get into folks' backstory in their formative years. You grew up in North Carolina in the Raleigh area. Talk about that. What were your formative years like? Sure. Yeah. As you said, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, have uh, two amazing parents and and sisters uh, supporting me kind of in anything that I dreamed about doing. And for me, the thing that was my dream from the time that I was about 10 years old was playing college football. That's, that's all I could think about. Um, You know, one day I I wanted to play college football. I was a quarterback and I, I, I dreamed of continuing to play and to play at the next level. And um, as I, as I kind of grew older and and, and that dream maybe was becoming more and more of a reality. um, I also was really interested in health generally um, and maybe the idea of going into medicine, um, but I I still didn't have it totally, um, totally baked out. And, and thankfully uh, coach Bob Benson, former um, coach, coach on the football team uh, recruited me and, um, and, and I just was, was really thrilled about the opportunity to potentially come to Georgetown. And you did. And again, what was that moment of saying, because again, you know, you're in North Carolina, so it's, you know, that, that mix of academics and all that, what was the seminal moment of you going, okay, Georgetown's the place for me. You know, it was a, a number of different factors coming together. Um, one of which was that Georgetown had this incredible health sciences program. And so as I was excited about the football team and the program and, and uh, a coach in particular, Joe Moorhead, um, Joe Moorhead has gone on to be a head coach at Mississippi State and the offensive coordinator at Oregon. He was the quarterback coach and offensive coordinator. And, and he and, and his, his dream uh, for, for what the offense could look like was really compelling to me. But in addition to the football side of things, knowing about this health sciences major that I could, I could kind of get involved in, in health, medicine, uh, uh, wellness, kind of at, at an early stage, that was really exciting to me. And then hearing about the commitment to service um, at, at Georgetown was just something that was really unique. I mean, I was going to a lot of other great schools, but they all seemed to be so much about like serving yourself and Georgetown so much about serving other people. And that just it just felt so good because that was something that my, my mom taught me so much about when I was growing up about how, you know, really, um, you know, life isn't uh, about, you know, achieving things for ourselves, it's about doing things for others. And so I just, I just love that about Georgetown. And David, your mom plays such a key role in your story because, you know, everything's flying high for you. You end up at Georgetown, you're playing on the football team. It's got everything you want. And I believe only a few weeks into your time on the Hilltop, you find out your mom's diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, Take me back to the feeling of kind of finding that out so early on when everything's really going so well for you. That's right. I mean, as you said, I was kind of achieving that dream. Everything was um, was was going so well. And then out of nowhere, I was just blindsided with um, what really was the you know most difficult experience in my life to learn that my 
my mom uh, had, had this terrible form of cancer and kind of um, very much in line with what the next several years of my life would look like. One of my closest friends, Greg Davis, who was a fellow player on the football team, um, when I, I told him, you know, what happened, he, he actually had me come over to his parents' house. Greg, I uh, grew up in the DC area. And, and so I, I stayed at his parents' house that night after I found out um, my mom was so sick that I was going to go home the next day, but they just wanted to be there for me. And that's just, I think like a really good symbol for what Georgetown was like. It was, you know, at my lowest points, my toughest moments, my buddy, Greg, um, who I literally had just met, um, you know, he's having me come over to his parents' house and just just be with be with them and, and get some kind of um, support from them during what was really such a tough time. And of course, I went home uh, the next day and and my mom had, had brain surgery. And that was um, the beginning of, of a really tough about 15 month battle that my mom had with cancer. Uh, and thankfully, I just had incredible support from from friends, teammates like Greg. Tragically, your mom would pass away, um, I believe, a year or so later on. And I, I, I remember in doing some research, you kind of said to yourself, you know, my mom, she's a fighter. She's she's going to make this pass. Whatever they tell her, she's going to make it a day or two pass. Like, that's yep. the way she is. What did you learn from her battle? I learned so much from her battle. I mean, I said earlier that she was just the the most incredible person. She was the strongest person. She was so committed to helping other people. And so when she personally became ill um, and diagnosed with cancer, um, she taught me about what it's like to um, face really tough moments in life with grace and dignity and um, and just to kind of never give up, stay positive during really tough times. Um, and, and actually, I had a conversation with her just a couple of weeks before she passed away where I told her, I said, mom, um, I'm going to be okay. Cause she was, she was worried about, um, you know, if I would be okay after she passed mom, I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to start something in, in your memory for other kids that are going through the illness or death of a loved one. And I'm going to call, going to call it AMF. My mom's name was Anne Marie Fagenbaum, her initials for AMF. And I didn't know what it would be. Like I had no idea what this thing was that I was promising to my mom, but she loved the idea. And, you know, now that I made this promise to her, obviously I was going to, I would have done anything in the world to achieve that promise. And, and that really, set a fire under me. And the other promise I made to her is I said, mom, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to trying to find treatments for patients like you. And, uh, and so of course, to do that, I would, I knew that I would need to go to medical school. And we'll get into that in a second, but wanted to touch on AMF a little deeper. Again, it, it's a foundation. If you could kind of walk everybody through it, it's for um, basically kids in college that lose a parent, correct? That's right. And, and that's how it started out. It was, it was kids at Georgetown who lost a parent. And I, I just, could not believe that when I, when my mom passed and I came back to Georgetown and I started telling people, I'm going to do this in memory of my mom, she just passed away. I couldn't believe that there were people on my hall at, in my dorm that had just lost a loved one to cancer or to heart disease or, or to a variety of things. And none of us had ever talked about it. I mean, we were literally on the same, in the same dorm, same hall going through the same thing, but we were really struggling. Like we were completely alone because no one was talking about it. So when we started this group AMF, the idea is that we would have a, a central place where people could get together to share what they were going through. And unfortunately, we learned that there were so many people on campus that had gone through or were going through something like this. And, and pretty soon, I mentioned earlier that it was initially just for kids whose parents had, had passed. But then we started to expand it to anyone who was coping with the illness or death of a loved one, however they define loved one, could be a friend, could be a grandparent, however they define someone that they love. And um, it was amazing to see 
when you start bringing people together to support one another, um, you know, kind of the same way I mentioned in the beginning, just, you know, being present with other people during tough times, it, it was just incredible. Um, the, the kind of, um, support and impact um, that the program was having. And it was so cool for me because obviously I missed my mom with, with everything inside of me, but to hear people talk about AMF did this for me or AMF did that for me, it was like my mom's life was was continuing. It was like, you know, her commitment to helping people and others was like lived on, you know, through this thing, through AMF. And, and for me, that was like, you know, the most amazing thing. And, and, and amazingly, AMF continues to this day. I'm actually no longer involved with AMF. And, and most people that are part of AMF have no idea the history of, you know, what AMF even stood for. But it lived on, you know, well beyond my mom and, and, and hopefully it'll live on well beyond me. Um, but yeah, helping helping young adults cope with the illness or death of a loved one. And it, it's actually funny. We, in the research, I noticed that I believe it was for that, that you ended up on the back of Doritos bags. I think they were highlighting people who were doing good works and that type of thing. How surreal was that feeling to be like, oh, there's me on a Doritos bag? That's right. My, my face is in the back of 40 million bags of Cool Ranch Doritos for, um, from 2008 or 2007 through 2008. And um, it was amazing to me how many of my friends, um, how many people eat Cool Ranch Doritos. I mean, that first, that was the first thing that was shocking. Another thing was, was when people usually eat Cool Ranch Doritos. I learned that my friends only eat them between midnight and 2 a.m. because that's when I would get these phone calls and text messages to be like, I was at the 7-Eleven and I just ate a bag of Doritos and, you know, I see your ugly mug on the back of them. You know, what, what is this? Um, but, but, you know, all jokes aside, it was an incredible way to raise awareness about grieving college students because the idea of college student grief was, was not something that had really been highlighted very much. But, you know, a lot of college students eat Doritos and it, and it really got the story and people went to our website, they learned how to get involved. Dozens of campus chapters were started because of it all, all because of these, these Doritos bags. I tell you, it must have been one of those times like, just go to bed. You call me in the morning, but just wait till the morning, man. Don't worry about that. No, I, I knew once I got a call at 2 a.m., I, I always knew what it was about. I was like, someone's eating some of these Doritos. <laughs> Talking with Dr. David Fagenbaum. And David, I want to get back to your career at Georgetown as a football player. What memories, some of the best memories you have from your time on the gridiron on the hilltop? I've got so many good memories from my time. I mean, I think that the fact that you can get together a group of a hundred student athletes that we came from all different walks of life and to just kind of get behind a singular mission, you know, you know, winning football games and to just do anything and everything, our power together as a team. Um, there are just, there are just so many good memories. I, I actually, I'm embarrassed that there isn't one that I'm immediately drawn to, but I, I mean, it just as I think back to my time on the Hilltop, there were so many moments that were, you know, highs where, you know, uh, we, we accomplished something as a team. We didn't actually always have the, the best record on, on the field, but, you know, obviously we have some, some, some big wins um, sprinkled in there that, that were, were great memories, but I think maybe more than anything, it was, um, and it may sound cliche, but um, we faced a lot of adversity and we, we lost, frankly worked really hard and still lost a lot of games. And, and it wasn't because we weren't working hard. It was just like, you know, the chips just didn't always fall the way that we thought that they should. And um, that actually taught me a lot. It was, it, it, you know, sometimes you hear that and you're like, well, that could teach you that maybe you just shouldn't work as hard because who cares? Like, you know, we could have worked half as hard and we would have still lost the game. Um, but it, it kind of taught me the opposite, which is that like, 
like, you know, we should work that hard. We did work that hard. And, and we knew that we like left it all on the field. It's like, yeah, we lost, but like we went out swinging and, um, that sort of concept of like, you know, you, you may be up against a really tough opponent and you're probably going to lose like 99% chance you're going to lose. But if you don't put everything you have into it and you lose, you feel like, you know, you let yourself down, but if you put everything you've got into it and you still lose, like, Hey, you can, you can, you know, walk off the field with your head up. And, um, and I think that that became really, really important for me as I was facing my medical challenges. And David, those would come soon again after Georgetown. You leave the hilltop. You end up at Oxford for a year. You end up at the University of Pennsylvania. You get an MBA out there. You're in medical school. Where does your drive kind of come to throw yourself into things like that? Yeah, I think that um, the the fact that I, I played football at Georgetown and um, I, I think is very like linked to this stuff. I mean, I, I was definitely not the most athletic player on the field and I and I probably wasn't wasn't the most talented quarterback always but I, I worked so hard and I had singular focuses where it would be like this is all I'm gonna do and I'm gonna do I'm gonna put everything into it and um, I mean when I was growing up I had like poster boards all over my walls with like my throwing distance my 40 time you know everything it was just constantly like how can I get better and and how can I like focus on this one thing and so you know, once my, um, when my mom passed, all of a sudden I now had two focuses. One was, of course, growing AMF. And the other one is to, to become a doctor to take care of patients like my mom, hopefully, you know, be a part of advancing treatments for patients like my mom one day. And so I just ran after those with just everything I had. And I knew that in order to get to where I wanted to get to, I would need to, um, you know, accumulate the credentials. So uh, to do the master's at Oxford and then to do medical school at Penn, um, but it was actually during med school at Penn when I got really sick and I, and I, and that's when I then decided I wanted to do the, the MBA because it became so clear that, and this is something I, I guess I should have learned years before on the football field, but the, the challenges for um, finding a drug that could save my life, um, they weren't really medical problems. They were actually like organizational. They were like teamwork problems, like the medical community, the system just didn't work well. People weren't working together. And of course, like I said, I learned a lot of that on the football field, um, but it became clear that if I really wanted to find a drug that could save my life, I should go to business school and, and develop some of those skills and um, strategies so that we could really make progress against Castleman's. And Castleman, again, such a huge part of your life. And that's what you end up getting sick with when you're at Pennsylvania as a med student. I think I saw that you kind of said that you literally to the, were to the point of, I'm going to look at patients and then I'm going to take a five minute nap. And it keeps happening over and over again. And you thought to yourself, ah, it's just, I'm really tired because I'm doing so many things. When did you kind of figure out, hey, this might be something off and I need to get checked out? You're, you're totally right. It was just crazy how tired I was feeling. I was a third year med student. I was on a really tough rotation. And so I was like, oh, I'm just tired because I'm you know, sleep deprived. But it was a fatigue that I had never felt before. And as you said, it was a fatigue where I literally would see a patient and then I would go to an empty room in the hospital and I would sleep for a few minutes, set my alarm, go back and see patients and do that all day long because I was so tired. No matter how many Red Bulls or coffees I had, I just couldn't I just couldn't function, frankly. And eventually the abdominal or sorry, the fatigue turned into abdominal pain, turned into lumps and bumps in my neck that I didn't know what they were. It turned into fluid accumulating around my ankles, all this kind of crazy stuff that just didn't fit for like a healthy 25 year old. I was so into fitness and exercise. I actually had, I had won a Virginia state bench pressing tournament, like just a few months before I was like 
working out all the time. Um, and then all of a sudden I was just not in, in a good state of health at all. And, um, and so it was kind of as things progressed and I eventually went to the hospital. I just, well, I was already in the hospital. I just walked down the hall to the emergency department and um, they did blood work where they said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are shutting down. We got to hospitalize you right away. And you would go in and it would be the start of a fight um, with Castleman disease. David, for the layman, what is Castleman? Sure. It's a disease where basically your immune system gets hyperactivated and out of control and starts attacking your vital organs. And so my type of Castleman is called idiopathic Castleman disease, which means that we don't know the cause of it. So basically my immune system just goes berserk. And in the process of turning on and, and going crazy, it destroys all of my vital organs. It hits my, my heart, my lungs, my kidneys, my liver, my bone marrow, all of these things that your immune system is supposed to protect those things. It's not supposed to destroy them. Um, and we don't know why. Uh, and so, so, you know, a lot of the research that we do is really around trying to understand why is the immune system just destroying everything it's supposed to be protecting. And of course you would be in the hospital. And I think, you know, from looking back, you know, there were times where you're literally sitting there going, I'm going to die. What yeah. is that feeling like just to know, I mean, everyone knows eventually it's coming, but to think it's coming yeah. very soon, what goes through your mind at that point? Yeah. So 25 years old had, you know, previously been so healthy college athlete. And then all of a sudden I'm laying in the intensive care unit um, with my organs shutting down. I'm on uh, a number of different life supports to keep me just alive through the day. Um, and uh, it was just devastating. I mean, for me, I think that um, all I could think about was all of the things that I wanted to do and that I would never get the chance to do. I, and, and I found that I didn't regret anything in my life that I had done. And I, I, I did, there wasn't anything where I was like, man, I wish I didn't do this thing. It was actually the things I regretted were the things that I hadn't yet done. The things that I wanted to do, I had said I wanted to do, but I just didn't have the time to achieve them. Um, or that maybe I put them on the back burner. And, um, and so that sort of, it was, it was so painful. Just this like, you know, painful feeling in my gut of regret. That, like, I wish I had done those things that I'd wanted to do. And I promised myself, I was like, if somehow, some way I survived this, I'm never, ever going to live a life where I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. I'll do that in the future. Or like, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. That's just, you know, not something I'm going to have in my vocabulary anymore. If, if I survive this and if it's something that's important to do, um, then I need to do anything I can to make whatever I'm hoping for become a reality. And um, amazingly, uh, despite being on my deathbed and actually even having a priest read my last rites to me in November of 2010, um, thankfully, right around that time, the diagnosis was made and thankfully chemotherapy was given and it saved my life. Um, but unfortunately, I would go on to have a number of relapses. Um, and so it was really just the beginning to get the actual diagnosis. We'll talk to Dr. David Fagenbaum more about his fight against Castleman disease, his run-in with a celebrity, a medical celebrity we all know now, as well as his fight against COVID coming up on the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC. As the official bank of the Georgetown Hoyas, PNC Bank is committed to all those who are rooting for the home team. With Virtual Wallet, you'll get a breakdown of your budget and see how much is scheduled out of your bills versus how much is left to spend. So you know when it's the perfect time to buy tickets to the big game. To learn more, visit pnc.com slash virtual wallet. PNC Bank, official bank of the Georgetown Hoyas. Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. 2019 PNC Bank National Association member F. FDIC. In 1979, Jiffy Lube provided the world's first quick oil change with no appointment. 
and that changed everything. And now, 40 years later, it's time to change everything again. Introducing Jiffy Lube MultiCare, where at participating locations, you can now get the same fast and convenient no-appointment service on brakes, batteries, spark plugs, and more, performed by our highly trained technicians. Playing Jiffy Lube MultiCare. Jiffy Lube MultiCare. Now, more than ever, you can do more in a Jiffy. For Hoya fans, Saturday is game day. For business owners, it's another day in your work week. UPS gets that, and that's why they're offering Saturday delivery, so you can keep things running smoothly even while your customers drop everything for the game. Stay on top of your game. Ship with UPS, official logistics company of Georgetown Athletics. Well, David, it's interesting throughout your fight against Castleman disease, your dad was there at your side and really kind of in the same vein as you have was looking to do anything he could to keep his son alive. I know they're talking about how I think you said that you and him just got in your car one day and drove to Little Rock, Arkansas, because that was where the world's foremost expert was. But it's also funny during that time, he called the National Institutes of Health and managed to get a doctor that we've all become familiar with on the phone, though he didn't know anything about him and apparently had some deep conversations about trying to figure out a cure for you, correct? That's right. Yeah. My dad actually got um, this doctor's phone number from Betty Jacobs. Betty was a dean at Georgetown when I was there. And so Betty has remained a good family friend. And, and when Betty heard that I was so sick and nice to you, she said, you know, told my dad, you need to reach out to this doctor. He's this great doctor at the NIH and he'll have, you know, maybe have some answers for you. So my, my dad called his cell phone, didn't know who he was. He just knew he was at the NIH. And my dad started calling him every day for the next three weeks. And every day this doctor would answer my dad's calls. And every day my dad would run through all of my blood tests and what was going on. And, and this doctor would kind of give him ideas for, well, they should think about this. They should think about that. Maybe they should treat it with this and that. And, um, about six months later, I was finally discharged from the hospital and I was finally like with it. And I said, dad, when I was in the ICU, I have these vague memories of you on the phone with someone. Who was this? Who were you on the phone with? Like every day. I mean, again, it's just very vague memories because I was so sick. He said, oh yeah, it was this doctor that I age. I think his name's Fuchi. You should Google him. And so I go to Google and I Google Fuchi, F-O-O-C-H-I, um, N-I-H. And I, and I learn that it was Dr. Tony Fauci that my dad had been calling every day. And of course, all of us have, have, have grown to know Dr. Fauci in the last year, but he had actually already won a presidential medal of freedom before my dad talked to him. So my dad should have known who he was back then, or at least should have Googled him. Um, but I just, I love that story because I think it highlights how important your loved ones, your family are during really tough times. I mean, as you said, my dad would have done anything in the world um, to help to find a solution for me, even, you know, hound an NIH director. But I think it's also representative of what we all would do for our loved ones and, and, and you know, maybe what we all should do, you know, when our loved ones are having a hard time. And David, I think one of the things that I've found out about you and kind of doing my research is you've done a great job of, I think maybe more so than maybe other people in the medical field of kind of, you, you've got these stories and concepts that the layman can kind of understand. Um, your concept of overtime, I thought was great. Um, basically, in a nutshell, kind of saying to yourself, you know, in the first half of a football game, you make a mistake, you say, ah, we got time to come back. 
in overtime, everything is condensed. You know, we, we saw it in the UCLA Gonzaga game a couple of nights yeah. ago. Like every play could mean the difference between winning and losing, or at least in your mind it does. Um, where did you kind of come up with that? And why do you think it's such an uh, apt metaphor for life and what we should be living our lives as? Sure. So this idea of overtime um, came to me when I was uh, writing my book, Chasing My Cure, which I know we were chatting about earlier. And it was um, my attempt to try to get a sense for what is this feeling? I mean, for me, it's like there's a clock and it's and it's like I can hear this clock. And so um, and because I hear the clock of kind of of my life, it gives me a clarity around like, OK, well, what's so important in life? And, and then as I thought about it, I was like, well, that clock's kind of like a clock in overtime, right? It's like this, you know, and you, you aren't looking at the clock, so you don't actually know how much time you have, but you know that it's there and you know that it's ticking down and you know that each tick of the clock is, has more weight to it than, as you said, in the first half of the game, you can make up for those sort of things. Um, and so I think that overtime really describes exactly how I feel every day. When I, when I wake up, I, I know that the clock's ticking. I know that I have this deadly condition. Um, I mentioned it involves the immune system attacking your vital organs. Well, it, it also kills one third of patients shortly after diagnosis, kills another third of patients within 10 years of diagnosis. So this is a deadly condition that um, I know can come back for me at any time. And so I live hearing the clock and early on that was terrifying. I mean, it was absolutely frightening to be like, oh my gosh, I have this awful disease and it's gonna kill me at some point really soon. And it is still as terrifying. I'm not going to say that it's, it's not scary, but what has changed over time is that I've appreciated that like in overtime, if, if uh, Jalen Suggs for, for Gonzaga had gotten, you know, nervous and afraid because the clock was ticking down, there's no way that he would have made that shot. So it's, it's about recognizing I'm in, in overtime and because I'm in overtime, I can't be afraid. I need to use it for, to provide clarity around what's important. And so now it's like, okay, I'm in overtime. What is the most important thing for me to do, do today? What's the most important thing for me to do tomorrow? And, and it provides me some clarity around, around how I should live my life. And David, you go through treatments and a lot of it's chemotherapy. I think I heard you know, seven different chemotherapies you were going through yeah. and it would send your condition into remission, but it would come back. And this happened multiple times. And, you know, your fiance at the time, I think it happened where you were getting married and then it yeah. kind of got to the point where, you know, you look like you might not be able to do that. It kind of became this big fight. And long story short, at some point, it feels like you kind of went from the idea of hoping for a cure to saying to yourself, hey, I've got some background here. I might need to go and kind of take the bull by the horns. Where was that kind of clarity moment for you to say, this is what I have to do to have a chance at this? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And for me, it was almost later in my in my journey than you would expect. I mean, I was a, a medical student at the time. I had you know, been in medical research for quite some time. And so you'd think that maybe early on, I would have wanted to kind of jump in and get involved. But I'll tell you, I, um, I didn't think that there was any chance that I was going to be able to make a difference. It was like, look, like, I, you know, what am I going to do as a medical student? You know, the medical field has been studying this disease for 60 years. Um, and, and also, frankly, I just wanted someone else to figure it out. I mean, I think that's what we all want, right? You know, we all want like things to get figured out and we want someone else to do it. Um, and, and I had some reason to believe that maybe someone else could do it. I was actually on an experimental drug that was helping some people. So I was like, well, maybe this can help me. Um, but it was when that drug didn't work and I was like literally out of options where there just, there were no other drugs. There were no other promising leads. My doctor explained to me that there were, there was nothing else left. 
And it was in that moment that I think that I can probably kind of tie a really direct connection to, to my Georgetown football playing days, which was like, okay, the cards are stacked against me. It is incredibly unlikely, no matter how hard I work, that we're going to win this, that I'm going to find something that could save my life. But I'm going to go out swinging. If I put everything I have into this and I don't make it, I don't find something, I will know that I put everything I had into this and it will make it easier to, to go out. And, um, and so I, I made a promise to my dad, my sisters, and, and my girlfriend, who, who shortly thereafter would become my fiance. And I promised them, I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that life may be, to trying to find something that could save my life and patients like mine, um, knowing very well that it was unlikely I was going to find something. Um, but again, back to those Georgetown football days, there were a lot of games we played against Lehigh and Lafayette and, and Fordham. And unfortunately, we probably were never going to beat them, no matter how hard we worked in the offseason. It probably wasn't going to happen. But we put everything we had into it. And when we did lose to those three good teams, we knew we had put everything we had into it. And, and, so, and so that's what I did here. And, um, and thankfully, uh, you know, we were able to make some progress. I think there's a, a, an anecdote that I'll just share that um, it, it reminds me of, um, of a quote from, from – from the movie Dumb and Dumber, which isn't typically the movie that I pull, you know, really philosophical quotes from, um, although it, it's, it's an amazing movie. Um, and that's that um, you'll remember um, when Lloyd Christmas is told that there's about a one in a million chance, he responds by saying, so you're saying there's a chance. And, and I think that basically, you know, my doctor explained to me that like, you know, we're out of options, you know, you've got a one in a million chance. And um, I think kind of informed by this sort of, you know, spending my life just kind of grinding, even if I knew that it was unlikely that, that things would turn out the way I wanted them to, um, that, you know, I, I heard that and I said, okay, so you're saying there's a chance. And, um, and then that became the start of my journey. And it's funny, we've, we've done so many football metaphors, one more, I think you end up turning to repurposed medicines, which we've heard a lot about in COVID folks just trying to find something. And, you know, it's almost like a team that completely scraps their offense and said, we're just going to try this and see if it works. And then it starts yep. to work. Yep. Was that the feeling? Again, talk, walk us through that kind of period of, hey, let's see if a couple of these things stick. And then when you found one that did, how maybe elated you were that, hey, I got a, maybe a new shot in life here. Yeah. So you're exactly right. I mean, once I made that decision, I'm going to dedicate my life to trying to find something. I started con conducting laboratory research at Penn. I started a foundation called the Calcium Disease Collaborative Network to try to push this science forward. And um, we were making some really, really good progress. And I was getting really optimistic. And then I relapsed again. And I nearly died for the fifth time um, with this from this disease, despite all of my best efforts. And that was kind of like, you know, uh, another just, just, you know, setback. I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, we were making this progress and, and now I'm not going to make it. And then somehow some way chemotherapy, a combination, as you said earlier, seven different drugs saved my life. Um, uh, but of course I knew my, my, my clock was really ticking at that stage. And I knew that I wasn't going to survive another one of these deadly relapses that I just, you know, when you play Russian roulette five times, you don't want to play a sixth time. Like, you know, you've got, you've gotten lucky five times, like, Let's do anything we can to stop, you know, from having to play a sixth time. And so um, that's when, as you said, I started looking around to see, are there drugs that are already approved for something else that maybe I could try on myself? Because I knew that was my only shot. I mean, there was no way I was going to develop a new drug to treat my disease. I mean, that's, it takes so many resources, so much time, totally implausible. But what I did believe I could do is if I could find out what was going wrong inside my body, in my immune system. 
And then I could figure out, is there a drug that's already approved that's at my neighborhood pharmacy that maybe could fix the problem within me? And so I started searching for it and I did find something that looked really promising, a drug called serolimus. It's been around for over 30 years. It had never been used before for Castleman's, but the way that it works, um, I thought that it, it might actually help in my case based on some experiments that I'd run on my samples. And so I started testing it on myself. And, you know, we were chatting earlier about, was there kind of a, an aha moment? Was there like kind of the feeling of just like, you know, excitement that comes with, um, with, with, you know, knowing that you're onto something. And, and for me, there was a lot of excitement when I figured out, like, I think this might work, but then I just, and maybe it's also something I learned from, from the football field is kind of like never get too excited. Cause I just, so many times I've been kind of like beaten down, you know, with this disease. And so I was optimistic, but I was very, very cautiously optimistic. And, and for me, it was going to be a test of time. I had nearly died five times in three years. So as time ticked on, if I was on a drug and I wasn't back in the hospital and I wasn't relapsing, that was kind of the proof that it was working, but I knew it was going to be a test of time. And so for Caitlin and I, so Caitlin uh, was my fiance at the time um, and we were due to get married May 24th, 2014. And the, the first real milestone that all we could think about was, could I make it to May 24th, 2014? Could this drug keep me in remission that long? And and it did. And I made it to May 24, 2014, and we got married. And that sort of milestone um, of making it to our wedding day and not knowing whether I was going to survive for a day longer or two days longer, who knows how much longer it just, we made it. That was such, just such an incredible day. And I know everyone's wedding day is absolutely, you know, such a happy day, but I will argue with you to say that like that day felt like extra special because it just, we just weren't sure whether I was going to physically be alive, you know, for that day. And then, and then the future milestones that we started looking at were like one year, could I really make it a whole year? And then it was like a whole year. We're like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then it's like, can I make it two years? And, um, and actually we, we've just crossed over seven years now um, that I've been in remission um, thanks to this drug. And that's just amazing what you've been able to do and your team as well. Um, yeah. And I think the fact that, you know, you were able to get into remission, I believe that kind of maybe spurred you to write the book, um, Chasing My Cure. Uh, why what did you say at some point, hey, this, this is the time to say, to share my story? You know, I think that for me, as I reflected back on what I had gone through, um, and I guess from, from again, I keep connecting back to football. From football, we're, we often focus on the present and the future. We don't really spend all that much time, you know, looking back, especially um, on some not so good memories. But um, as time went on and, and I kept looking back on what I had gone through, it just became clear to me how many just life-changing lessons I had learned from my journey and how I was like a fundamentally different person after five deadly relapses and after finding a drug that could save my life and building a team to achieve that. And so for me, it was like, wait a minute, I've learned all these things and I don't know how much longer I have. I don't know what's gonna happen with this, you know, this drug's working today, but what about tomorrow? Maybe I need to get this down on paper so that this can live, live beyond me. And, um, and so, yeah, I had, had the opportunity to write Chasing My Cure. And um, earlier you mentioned team and, and my only um, regret with, with the book is that it's, it's called Chasing My Cure, but it really should be called Chasing Our Cures because it wasn't me on my own. It, it wasn't me you know, searching for a cure by myself. 
I had this, and I had, and I still have this incredible team, both of supporters, people like my wife, Caitlin, and my dad and my sisters and friends from Georgetown that supported me along the way. And at the same time, I had collaborators. I had people who, who rolled up their sleeves and ran experiments with me. They helped to analyze data. They thought through the results of the experiments. I mean, this is, this at its heart has been such a team effort. And I think if you pluck out any one of those people, any piece of this puzzle, it doesn't work. I mean, it pull out one of those friends, family researchers out of this. And I'm not here today. I'm not talking to you on this podcast, but it's because of the whole team working together, everyone, you know, being kind of focused on the mission that, that I'm here today and, and that we're talking about this and that, that the book's out there um, and, and, and thankfully inspiring people. And David, I think a good time now to transition over, you've been working on COVID as well. And I think you tell this so perfectly, the names Kazu Yoshizaki and Emily Whitehead, what do they mean to you? Sure. So, um, Castleman disease, as I mentioned, is a, is a rare disease. Um, it's about as common as ALS, um, but, but certainly much less public awareness, but it's a rare disease. Um, thankfully, there was a researcher about 40, 40 so years ago who was studying Castleman's and he thought that a particular drug um, could be effective for treating Castleman's patients in Japan. And he developed the drug, he, he figured out, he thought it would work in a certain way. And, um, and as, as I heard from one of his colleagues, he decided to, to test it on himself to prove that it was safe. Um, and I'm now friends with Kazu. And I said, Kazu, Makoto told me that you tested tocilizumab on yourself. You gave it to yourself. He said, no, no, no. I didn't give it to myself. The nurse, she gave it to me. I said, exactly, Kazu. So Kazu Yoshizaki discovered the treatment for Castleman's. It unfortunately only works in about one third of patients and it did not work for me, but he discovered this you know, life-saving treatment for a third of patients. He tested it on himself and, and, and he didn't die. So he tested it on other patients and it got approval in Japan and it was saving countless Castleman's patients' lives in Japan. Fast forward uh, many years and it got approved here in the United States for rheumatoid arthritis. It's actually effective for one of the most common autoimmune conditions, RA. And there was a young patient at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that got this experimental cancer treatment. It's a cancer treatment where basically your immune system gets supercharged to fight the cancer. And when the immune system got supercharged to fight the cancer, it also attacked her organs and it put her in the ICU. She was dying in the ICU. She looked just like a Castleman's patient, just looked just like me when I'm in the ICU. And so her doctors gave her this drug, tocilizumab, that Kazu had developed years before, and it saved her life. And in saving her life, it also saved really the most promising area of all of cancer research, this idea of cellular immunotherapy. So Emily's life was saved by the drug. Um, the field was saved truly by this drug. And, and you go back and you look at it and you say, this drug was developed for Castleman disease by Kazu. And this, I think is a great example of what's called drug repurposing. It's when you take a drug, it may have been developed for Castleman disease 30 years ago in Japan, but it works in a particular way. And many diseases share the same defects. So a drug that works in Castleman disease by doing this one thing may also be really effective in rheumatoid arthritis by doing the same exact thing. And so this idea was really mind blowing for me. And that's really what led me to go on this journey in Castleman's to say, well, maybe some of the things wrong in my disease are actually also shared with another disease where there's already a drug. So maybe we can quote unquote repurpose it, take a drug for one thing and use it for a different purpose. And, um, and that saved my life. I'm alive today because of this idea of drug repurposing that drug serolimus. So when COVID hit, 
and when it was clear a little bit over a year ago that the most deadly cases of COVID were experiencing something called a cytokine storm where your immune system gets out of control, that it was very similar to Castleman's, that the most severe cases that are in the ICU have an almost identical um, clinical picture as the most sick Castleman's patients. The only difference is that in Castleman's, we don't know why it's doing that. In COVID, we know it's because of the virus. And so I found myself about a year ago hoping that some researcher somewhere would follow the work that we'd done for Castleman's, would read through our papers, would follow our blueprint, would even read Chasing My Cure and go on this kind of journey. And then about a minute later, I was like, wait a minute, why am I hoping that some researcher somewhere that has a lab just like our lab that does exactly what our lab does, why am I hoping for that? Maybe we should just do it. And so we have. So we started something called the Corona Project, which is now the world's largest effort to identify and track drugs that can be repurposed for COVID. And many of us have heard about some of these drugs that have been repurposed. Um, and some of them haven't worked so well and others have worked really well. And drugs like dexamethasone have been around for decades and they're life-saving. Tocilizumab, that drug that Kaza developed is actually now used in the ICU for COVID patients all around the world. And, and, and this, is, this is the world that I wanna to work towards, a world where it doesn't matter what the drug was developed for initially, Let's make sure that every drug approved for at least one thing is used for everything else that it can be effective for. And why was it so important to kind of, you're open source, so everyone can kind of look at your, your data and these different things. Why was it so important? And how have you kind of made that uh, to work in a situation where it seems like some of these things have to be kind of kept secret away from each other? How can you make that model work, I guess, is the, is the question. So the question of how do we make it work bigger than Corona is really hard. I mean, I can tell you for us, we just felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, we got a bunch of medical students and people in my lab and uh, PhDs, MDs all together. And we just all rolled up our sleeves and got to work. We've um, reviewed over 29,000 papers in the last year. Um, so basically what I say is you could either go read 29,000 papers or you can go to our database and you can see the results of the 29,000 papers in one place. Um, and, I, and I would definitely rather go to the database. But we, but we felt that, you know, felt really compelled that this is a, a global pandemic. We need to make the data full, freely available. And even if it wasn't a global pandemic, I'm obviously, as you can imagine, a big proponent of open source and just, guys, there's, people's lives are on the line. Like we just got to make this freely available. So, so we felt compelled to do it. Thankfully I, I work at UPenn now. I run a center at Penn and Penn was supportive of me making it available. A lot of places will say, no, you can't make that kind of stuff available. You need to charge licensing fees and all that sort of stuff. But, but Penn was supportive of it. And, and now it's a global resource that the NIH, the FDA and many others use. Um, but your question of how do you do this on a bigger scale, I don't have the answer for it, but I can tell you that the more efforts like the Corona Project that prove that you can do this stuff open source, you can make it available and you can get research funding to still make it happen. I think that we're able to, to hopefully prove to other people that they should do the same thing. Coming to the end of our time with Dr. David Fagenbaum, we'll ask you this one to let you go. And we want to thank you for your time today, David. It's a question I think I posed it to you before we got started, and it seemed like you got a little smirk on your face that you thought it was a really good one. Does Georgetown inspire greatness or does it attract it? Because again, you, but so many people I've met in my time as with Georgetown have been like you, where you kind of come here and they just go on to do such great things. Where do you kind of stand on that question? I think it's both. I think that um, the answer is C, both, <laughs> but all of the above, A and B. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I mentioned that one of the reasons that I wanted to go to Georgetown, in addition to, to 
you know, the, the athletic piece was really the, the academic um, opportunities that, that really aligned well with me, the, the health science, but also I loved the, the focus on service, men and women for others. That, that like just spoke to me. I was like, this is, I haven't heard this anywhere else. Everywhere else I go, it's all about, we're going to help you and you're going to be a greater, you know, everything when you leave. And it's like, well, well, what about others? You know, this is, this is, you know, we're only on this earth once and um, you know, you know, let's make as big of an impact as we can. And so, so that really spoke to me. And I think that kind of was like kind of what, what pulled me towards Georgetown, but at the same time at Georgetown, I thought that's just how the world worked. I mean, I was, I was at a place where like everyone is part of service groups and we're, raising money and we're supporting people and we're doing things for other people. We're volunteering. We're like, and I actually, I think that I just like assume like that's just how everywhere works and every college is, but, but I learned that it's really unique to Georgetown and that sort of culture of giving back and the culture of, of fighting for impact above everything else, profit or whatever else it may be that um, I think has been kind of like infused into my DNA. And, And so I think that's where it really has shaped who I am. And it's meant that everything that I've done since then um, has really been been guided by this idea of, of men and women for others. Dr. David Fagenbaum, doing great work. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC. Jeremy, thanks so much for having me. Go Hoyas. We'll wrap things up right after this. MetStar Health is the official medical team of the Washington Capitals, Wizards, 2019 World Champion Mystics, and your Georgetown Hoyas. But you don't have to be an elite athlete to get the same level of care. MedStar Orthopedic Institute offers orthopedic surgeons who provide the innovative solutions for your entire spectrum of orthopedic care. With locations throughout D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, we welcome second opinions. Visit MedStarOrthopedicInstitute.org. Georgetown fans, this basketball season, remember to keep it interessante, just like Dos Equis, the taste that first brought baskets and balls together on the hilltop. It's the beer that pairs perfectly with Georgetown Blue and Gray, and the only beer that's brewed to the Georgetown fight song. So grab Dos Equis for tip-off and keep it interessante. Hoya Saxa. Enjoy Dos Equis responsibly, imported by Cervezas Mexicanas, White Plains, New York. Copyright 2019, Dos Equis Beer Brands. The Hoya Insider is available on a variety of podcast platforms, including SoundCloud and iTunes. Check out at Georgetown Hoyas on Twitter and Instagram for details on new episodes. We'd like to remind you that Dr. Fagenbaum's best-selling book, Chasing My Cure, is available nationwide. For our guest, Dr. David Fagenbaum, as well as our producer, Joel Russ, and our executive producer, Barbara Barnes, I'm Jeremy Huber saying so long. This has been the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC.